like to begin our time this morning as we progress in Luke by reading Luke chapter 20, verse 9 through 19. Luke chapter 20, verse 9 through 19. Now, he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and leased it to tenant farmers and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the father so that they might give him some fruit from the vineyard. But the farmers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent yet another servant, but they beat that one too, treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent a third, but they wounded this one too and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what should I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenant farmers saw him, they disgusted among themselves and said, This is the heir. Let's kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those farmers and give the vineyard to others. But when they heard this, they said, that must never happen. But he looked at them and said, then what is the meaning of this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will shatter him. Then the scribes and chief priests looked for a way to get their hands on him that very hour because they knew He had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. Lord God, as we study this parable told by our Lord, we ask that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, that we would receive this indictment, this rebuke, that we would learn from it, and that we would see the glory of your Son in it. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you were here last week, you'll remember that we have entered into a new section of Luke's gospel. Um, Chapter 20 and 21 comprise six conflicts in the temple. Luke gives us Jesus' Passion Week. He's just entered Jerusalem. And unlike some of the other synoptic gospels, Luke doesn't delineate the days. You see, at the beginning of chapter 20, verse 1, one day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel. And you go all the way to the end of chapter 21... And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mountain called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. That helps us understand this is a unit. It's marked off. It begins and ends with the same thing. Jesus is regularly in the temple teaching, and the people are hanging on his words. They're coming. They're rising early. That's what Luke shows us Jesus doing in the Passion Week. In fact, once we finish with chapter 21, if you look at chapter 22, it begins the institution of the Lord's Supper and the plot to kill Jesus, and then it goes straight into the arrest. So this is what Jesus did in Jerusalem for that week prior to his arrest, trial, and crucifixion. And there's six conflicts in the temple. Three of them are initiated by Jesus' enemies. We saw the first one last week where they challenge his authority. In verse 1 again, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came up and said to him, tell us, By what authority you do these things? And Jesus asks them a question in return. Just 
let's see how interested you really are in truth. What do you make of John the Baptist? Was his baptism from heaven or from man? And we saw their corrupt reasoning, their deceitful, hypocritical hearts. They aren't interested in truth. They aren't interested in what answer is right. They only are interested in what answer puts them in the best position. And they say, we don't know. And Jesus says, I don't talk to people like you. I'm not going to, neither will I answer you. And then, now Jesus goes on the attack with this parable. And, and it'll go back and forth. It'll, after this parable, they come to him and they ask him, try to trap him, ask him about paying taxes to Caesar. And again, he answers that. Then the Sadducees come and give it a try. And if you look at chapter 20, verse 40, the result of their failed attempts is this. They no longer dared to ask him anything. So they're going to try three different times to trap him and trap him in questions in the temple, and Jesus will master them. Jesus isn't done. He's still got two more salvos left. He's going to ask them about Psalm 110 and whose son the Christ is. It's going to end with him railing. Look at verse 45 of chapter 20. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to the disciples, Beware, the scribes, who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplace and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses, the pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. And then almost the entirety of chapter 21 is taken up with Jesus' prediction of the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, the sufferings that will accompany that throughout the age and the time of the Gentiles, and finally the events surrounding his return. That's what's in chapter 20 and 21. And so we're working our way through this conflict in the temple now. Last week... The, the enemies of Jesus sprung or tried to spring a trap on him. He, he demonstrated his fearlessness and their corruption. And now Jesus tells this parable of the murder of the landowner's son. And this is a parable that is sweeping in its scope. As we walk into it and try to understand what it represents, we'll see this really goes over all of Israel's history And not only does it look to the past, but from Jesus' point of view, it looks to the future. It's prophetic. It predicts things that will happen. And so I'd like to just move through looking at this in three points. The Lord's parable, the people's response, and the Lord's rebuke, and then the leader's desire to seize Jesus thwarted. Now Luke helpfully tells us the setting, and this is important to get. Look at verse 9. He began to tell the people... This parable. So who's he telling the parable to? He spoke to the people. And the people at this point in Luke have been in contrast to the leadership. You see that most clearly in 1947 and 48. He was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests, the scribes, and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. In contrast to that, they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. So there's the leadership who are trying to trap, kill, defeat Jesus. And there are people who even at the end of chapter 21, early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. So this is Jesus' audience. And at least they're at a point where they aren't hostily trying to kill him yet. They want to hear what he has to say. So Jesus is speaking to them, but he's speaking to them about The leadership, we see that clearly in verse 19. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. So he spoke to the people 
in response to the leaders or against the leaders. So he's telling the people this parable, but the thrust of this parable is against the leaders. Okay? Now we look at the cast of this parable. And, and the reason we're stopping here is because parables are stories that line up alongside of realities. And so we need to figure out what things correspond to what things. So we start by looking at our cast of characters. There's a landowner. There are tenants. There are the landowner's servants, and there's the landowner's son. Those are the four groups of people or people that we see in this story. Now we walk through the plot of this um, parable. And it begins, a man planted a vineyard and leased it to tenant farmers. This is not uncommon in Israel. Remember, the land would stay with families. So you were very hesitant to sell land. But you could rent it out. And if you if were a farmer and you didn't have money, this is a good way to make a relationship that is, that is beneficial for both you and for the owner of the land. And so somehow he entered into some contractual arrangement with these people. They would work the vineyard. Notice it's his vineyard. He planted the vineyard. But they're tending it. They're stewarding it. And the assumption is they're going to reap the majority of the crops from it. And they're going to give some sort of payment at regular intervals to the owner. So this is a, a fine and common practice in Israel. A man planted a vineyard and leased it to tenant farmers and went away for a long time. So far, nothing unusual, nothing noteworthy. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the farmers so that they might give him some fruit from the vineyard. And now we get some idea of what the contractual arrangement is. Notice he's not coming for money. Apparently, all this landowner is looking for is when there is a harvest... Give me some of the harvest. Give me a share of it. This is not an unreasonable. This isn't usury or taking advantage of these people. This is a very reasonable landowner. This is a very reasonable agreement. All he's looking for is just some of the fruit from the harvest at the appropriate time. And now things do take a shocking turn. So here comes this representative of the um, landowner and the servant's beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. That's somewhat shocking. That's illegal. It's a crime. They've broken not only their agreement to the landowner, but they've beaten this servant without reason. And now we see the patience of the landowner. He sent yet another servant, thinking, well, maybe, I don't know, maybe they didn't realize he was really from me, or maybe they need more time to think this over. He sends another servant. They beat that one, too. And treated him shamefully. They're, they're escalating their game. At every step, they treat the emissaries worse than the one before. And sent him away, empty-handed. He sent yet a third. And, and this is really remarkable. I mean, if, this, if you were a landlord, and you sent somebody to go collect the rent, and they beat him, I don't think you'd be sending something. You'd be calling the police. Or maybe you'd be going over and taking matters into your own hand. This, this is remarkable restraint and patience shown on this landowner. Remarkable patience, remarkable restraint and grace. And then the owner of the vineyard said, what should I do? He takes counsel with himself. I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. And, and here the thought is, okay, they have the audacity and the brashness and the boldness to so treat my servants Hopefully, when they see my son, surely their wickedness, surely their corruption will not be so great that they would do the same to him. They'll come to their senses. So he sends his beloved son. 
But these tenant farmers are more wicked yet still. When the tenant farmers saw him, they disgusted amongst themselves and said, This is the heir. Let's kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. Now, at this point, um, some commentators struggle to figure out their logic. How is it that by murdering the son, you might get the inheritance yourself? Um, it's likely that the assumption would be that if the son's coming, it's only because the landowner himself has deceased. And if you then kill the son, um, possessions, nine-tenths of the law, while this thing works itself out, you still get possession of this vineyard, you still get its crops and fruits, something probably like that. And the important point is this. They want to run the vineyard the way they want to run the vineyard. They want control of it. They want possession of it. They want its fruits. And they recognize who this person is. That's another key point. They recognize the son. They don't mistake him for somebody else. In fact, it's precisely because they recognize him, they plot to kill him. They threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Jesus asks this rhetorical question to the audience. This, this owner has come up with a very agreeable arrangement where all he's looking for is a percentage of the crop, not money. There's nothing unreasonable about this. He has not provoked these tenant farmers. He sends a servant. They beat him and send him out empty-handed. They don't honor their agreement. He sends another servant. They treat him shamefully, send him away empty-handed. He sends a third. They wound the third and threw him out. Then he sends a fourth emissary, his beloved son, whom they throw out and kill. What would you do? Well, Jesus tells us what the landowner will do in verse 16. And this is really the heart of the parable. He will come and kill those farmers and give the vineyard to others. And then the people who are listening to this understand what he has said. When they heard this, they said, that must never be. This is really the strongest negative formulation in Greek. It's what Paul uses throughout Romans, by no means, by no means. And he turned to them and said, then what is the meaning of the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls in that stone will be broken to pieces, but whoever it falls, it will shatter him. So the plot then, in summary, is seize a bunch of rebellious tenants kill the owner's son, and they are judged. And that's really the, the major plot points. It's to see the wickedness and the corruption of these tenant farmers, to see the patience, the grace, the landowner, and when eventually there is no more grace, the terrible judgment that follows. That is the plot of this parable. So now we've got to start figuring out who's who. Well, I think the first person to place is the easiest. The landowner clearly is God. God. In fact, this parable that Jesus tells is very similar to a number of Old Testament passages. Turn in your Bible to Isaiah 5. Jesus has adopted the formula and style of a very, very familiar passage, at least to the Jews of Jesus' day, in Isaiah chapter 5. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a 
wine vat in it, and he looks for it to yield grapes, but it's yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there for, to do for my vineyard than what I have done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed. Briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds and the, that they rain not upon it, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. The men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So there's a very strong parallel in this notion of a vineyard and God plants the vineyard. It's his vineyard. Now, Jesus does make some notable changes, and it's important to get. In Isaiah 5, the vineyard... And the vines specifically in the vineyard are Israel, Judah. Here, it's the tenants who are compared to the leaders of Israel. So there's a subtle shift. And in this, in Isaiah 5, the vines in this vineyard are Israel. So then God starts taking parts of the vineyard away. He takes down the watchtower. He takes down the hedge. He stops rain. And in Jesus' parable... The vineyard is not Israel, and here's your blank. Israel is given stewardship of the blessings of God. Israel, rather, is seen as the tenant farmers, and the vineyard is not destroyed. It's presumably a valuable vineyard. It's just given to other tenants. So I think what Jesus is doing is he's adopting a familiar pattern and formula but he's using it to his own means. This is a unique story, a unique parable. Isaiah told his to predict the Babylonian captivity. And Jesus here is using it for a different purpose. Israel was given stewardship of the blessings of God. In fact, I think it might be helpful to hear something the Apostle Paul says in Romans, summarizing what I mean by the blessings of God. Um, he speaks about Israel, his countrymen, in, in chapter 9, verse 4. They are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So here's what I would suggest. that The picture here is that Israel has been entrusted with the keeping, the stewardship of some good thing. This vineyard represents a good thing. Here, the vineyard doesn't yield bad fruit. The problem is they won't give the fruit to the landlord. It's a good vineyard, presumably. God's gave Israel the possession of the scriptures, the covenants of promise, the patriarchs, the temple worship system. They were given this stewardship of these good things, these blessings of God. And we've just seen Jesus confront the corruption of the temple worship, the corruption of Israel's religious leaders. We've just seen how they prey upon Israel. These stewards of God's blessings are not stewarding it very well. Israel was given stewardship of the blessings of God, point two. But Israel did not give God the fruit he required. What type of fruit would that be? That's about justice, How's about faithfulness? How's about loving the widow, the orphan, and the sojourner? How about the things laid out in the Mosaic Covenant? 
How about being a light to the nations? That's the type of fruit God was looking for from Israel. He gave them these promises so that they could be blessed and be a blessing to others. They did not give God the fruit he required. And Jesus used the similar imagery in Luke 13. He turned there. He told them this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. He said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I found none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? He answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. And when we looked at that passage, as God sends his son, he's looking for a response, a response of repentance and faith and humility, looking for that fruit. This is the type of fruit God's looking for. Israel didn't give it. So God sent prophets to Israel. Point three, Israel rejected those God sent to her. And I don't want to limit this just to the prophets. But God sent many, many leaders to Israel. And the history of Israel was one almost of universal rejection. Listen to a little later in Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 24 through 26. They did not listen or pay attention, but followed their own advice and their own stubborn, evil hearts. See, they followed their heart, and it wasn't good. They did not pay attention, but followed their own advice and their own stubborn, evil heart. They went backward and not forward. Since the day your ancestors came out of the land of Egypt until today, I have sent all my servants, the prophets, to you time and time again. However, my people wouldn't listen to me or pay attention. They became obstinate. They did more evil than their ancestors. Or, as Luke records a little later, if you turn to Acts chapter 7, Stephen, right before he gets stoned, gives a history of Israel. And he highlights how, even starting with Moses, God raised up Moses, and when Moses tried to intercede for his people, they turned on him, and he went away for 40 years. Even as he was first raised up, one said, oh, who made you a judge over me? Are you going to strike me down like that, that Egyptian? And even as God gave exodus to the people from Egypt, they wanted to turn back and return to slavery. Israel's history from Moses onward, Stephen points out, is one of continually rejecting those God sends her, and he summarizes it this way in verse 51 of Acts 7. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not Keep it. So this is a universal indictment of Israel, what Jesus is saying here. Um, it's true in Jeremiah's time. It's true um, in, when Stephen says it, and it's true now. God has sent prophets and teachers to Israel, and by and large, they've been rejected. Okay? So that's so far. The, we've got the parable. We've got the, the, the vineyard is God's blessings and promises and scriptures and all those good things. He's looking for some sort of response or fruit from those entrusted to care for those things. And instead of hearing the prophet's message of repent, return to me, and I will return to you. This is what Zechariah says. The people, by and large, in general, reject God's prophets. 
So then the story escalates to the next point where the landowner says to himself, I will send my beloved son. Now here, and this is interesting, for those who have ears to hear and eyes to see in Jesus' audience, Jesus is now answering the question of the scribes, the chief priests, and the elders. By what authority do you do what you do? For those who understand what Jesus is saying, he's now telling them by what authority. Because Jesus has already been identified in Luke's gospel as whom? At his baptism in Luke 3, the voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. When Jesus went up on the mountain, Luke 9, 35, a voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son. So for anyone who wanted to know by what authority Jesus is doing these things, who legitimately was looking for that answer and not looking to trap him, they have their answer now. By the authority that he is the beloved son sent by his father, that's how. That's what authority he has and possesses. There's the answer. Now, Jesus will say that more plainly a chapter or two later, and it will be the basis for, for which they kill him. But for people of ears to hear, and eyes that see in the crowd, Jesus has just given the warrant of his authority. He is the Father's beloved Son. The Father sends the Son. Maybe they'll listen to him. And for three years, Jesus has been calling on the people to repentance and faith. John the Baptist going as a forerunner, preparing them. Jesus healing them, doing good to them. I mean, the picture is of a sorely provoked God. Today, we really wrestle with the doctrine of God's wrath, God's anger. And we, we don't see how that fits. But the picture of the biblical story is this amazingly patient and kind and loving and provoked God who again and again and again is being stuck with a stick by his creation. We puts up with over and over and over again. So when judgment finally does come, and it does come, and it's terrible. We don't think, wow, why is this landowner so mean? We think, what an amazingly patient man. I mean, you and I would not have put up with this this long. There's no way. There's no way. Israel will kill God's son in just a few days. And this is where it gets prophetic. So the, the analogy of the three servants is looking back over Israel's history to their rejection of those whom God sent to them. But now, this this parable pivots and becomes prophetic looking forward. And again, we see Jesus' understanding and control of what is going on. The crucifixion is no mistake. It's not plan B. He knows it'll happen. They will commit the ultimate sin. They will kill God's son. And, And get this from the parable. They know what they're doing when they do it. They know what they're doing when they do it. Israel's leaders did not mistake Jesus for someone else. They didn't really think he was operating by Satan's power. They understood. They recognized him. They wanted possession of the blessings for themselves. They wanted to run the temple the way they wanted to run the temple. They wanted to do the sacrificial system the way they wanted to do it. They wanted control of these blessings. They wanted to reap its sole benefits. We've already seen them have very little interest. They're disgust for the Gentiles. They're supposed to be a light to the Gentiles, a blessing to them. They hated them. They wanted possession of these blessings for themselves and themselves alone. They recognized Jesus for who he was, and they killed him in that knowledge. They they did not make a mistake in that sense. They, They recognized him. And Jesus has said as much previously in Luke's gospel. And that then sets up the judgment, the judgment that will come. 
And, and we're going to read, especially in chapter 21, about terrible judgment. And you've got to cast that in the picture of the story of the incredibly patient God who for hundreds and hundreds of years patiently sends his servants and sends his servants and sends his servants. And they're, they're beaten, they're rejected, they're mocked. Isaiah was sawn in half with a wooden saw. I think that's who the author of Hebrews is talking about in chapter uh, 11. And... They're just mistreated. And yet God bears with them, and he bears with them, and he bears with them, and he sends more, and, he send, and then he sends his son. And they recognize the son, and they kill him. And then comes unimaginable judgment. God will bring devastating judgment against them. Just turn over a chapter to chapter 21. We'll just get a taste of this. We'll be there in a, in a month or so. Picking it up in uh, verse 5. While some were speaking of the temple and how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when they will not be left here, one stone upon another. They will not be thrown down. And they asked, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of these things about to take place? And he said, See that you're not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he. The time is at hand. Do not go after them. When you hear of wars and tumults, and do not be terrified, for these things must take place. But the end will not be at once. Now jump ahead to verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are in the side of the cities depart. And let not those who are out in the country enter into it, for these are the days of vengeance. To fulfill all that is written, alas, for women who are pregnant and those who are nursing infants in those days. There will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. What Jesus is describing there it took place in 70 AD, much of it, when the Roman general Titus surrounded the city, destroyed the temple, tore it down stone by stone, crucified thousands upon thousands of Jews, and Israel was scattered to the four winds. So the judgment that Jesus is speaking of is severe. But in the context of this parable, it is fitting. The landowner was far more patient than you and I would have been, but God will bring devastating judgment against them, and Jesus is telling them this. Israel is going to go down. Just as Isaiah used a similar image to predict the Babylonian captivity, Jesus is using this image to speak about his destruction. Now, he'll go into greater detail in the next chapter, so I'll, I'll leave that for then, but it's clear that's what he's referring to. But even more shocking, he gives the vineyard to others. What does that mean? What Jesus is saying is God's blessings will be entrusted to other leaders. <laughs> That, that is a huge blow for Israel. They've been entrusted with these things. Who are the others? I think it's the apostles. Jesus will entrust them the writing of the new scriptures. They'll be the ones entrusted with tending the gospel, and the promises of God. In fact, in chapter 21, um, Jesus says this to the apostles. Verse, I mean, 22, I'm sorry, 22, 28 to 30. You were those who stood by me in my trials. I bestow on you a kingdom, just as my father bestowed one on me, so you may eat and drink at my table. In my kingdom, you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. 
They're, they're placed over that. And it is through them now, no longer through the nation of Israel, that God is writing the New Testament. And eventually this group of people that they head up will become more and more to be Gentile. We saw even the reference to the time of the Gentiles. But the, the leadership, the stewardship of these promises and blessings has transferred from the self-appointed leaders of Israel to Jesus' apostles and disciples. And that is the shift. Israel is, is being, using Paul's imagery in, in Romans chapter 9 through 11, the branches are being cut off for a time. The branches are being cut off for a time. This is severe judgment. And through that severe judgment, I'll add, the gospel has come to us. So, that's the parable. Jesus explains how God sent him as the beloved son. That's his authority. That's the authority that gives him the right to do as he does. And that Israel has rejected those sent to him, her, by God, and will reject him, will kill him. Notice even the clarity of of the language here. They will cast him outside of the vineyard and kill him. And Jesus is not killed in Jerusalem, but outside the author of Hebrews makes that point. Let us go with them outside of the camp. And Jesus predicts this. And the New Testament speaks again and again of the church being built upon the foundation of what? The apostles and the prophets. The groups whom God used to write the scripture. So how do the people respond to this? Because remember, he's speaking to the people against Israel's leaders. Well, I think they understand what he's saying. And they cry out in shock, may it never be. I think they understand to some degree at least what Jesus is saying. And then they are horrified at the prospect. This is the strongest possible negative. No, 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 no. Because Jesus' announcement of judgment is so awful. They will be slaughtered. Their leaders will be destroyed. And the stewardship of God's blessings will be taken from them and given to another, to another group. People cry, may it never be. And then Jesus responds with a, with a correction and rebuke, and I think a note of hope. He says to them, he looked at them. So again, he's speaking to the people, not the leaders. They, and said, then what is the meaning of this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but whoever, on whomever it falls, it will shatter him. Okay, so Jesus quotes Psalm 118 there. Jesus quotes Psalm 118, verse 22. And what's interesting is this is the same psalm that they was quoted a little earlier in the psalm. Blessed is you comes in the name of the Lord when Jesus entered Jerusalem. So Jesus has already been identified in this context as the one of whom Psalm 118 speaks. That the people, the crowd in the temple would understand that. And what Jesus is saying is this, I think. Don't be surprised. You, you understood that I was the king who came in the name of the Lord. You understood that I was that blessed one. Don't be surprised that I am the stone that is rejected. I think they cry out in shock partly because the son is killed and partly because of the judgment. But if you understand that I am the embodiment of Psalm 118, I think I said 19, If you understand that I'm the embodiment of Psalm 118, then you must also understand that I'm the stone the builders rejected. Don't stumble over that. The rejected stone has become the chief stone. Or to put it another way, there is no crown without a cross. 
Jesus first goes to the cross, then he is exalted. And so he's telling these people who are shocked and shaken by what he has said, remember, we applied, you guys, my disciples applied that psalm to me, and you liked the blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord part, but that also comes with it, the stone that the builders rejected part. Point two, he entered Jerusalem to the citation of Psalm 118, 26. Psalm 118, 26. Just look there in uh, chapter 19, verse 38. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. That's the same psalm that Jesus just quoted from. And so what Jesus is telling them is, you can't have part of this. If I am, and I am, the one who will be exalted, the one who leads Israel in true worship, the one who redeems the worship, the one who, who brings this victory, you must understand I'm also the one who is rejected. I'm also the one who is despised. And so Jesus gives an application then. Everyone who falls in that stone will be broken in pieces, and whoever it falls, it will shatter him. So the danger is going to be this. The, the crowds, as we've seen, are very interested and enthusiastic about Jesus. They're getting up early. They're coming to the temple. They're putting contrast to the people. But as Jesus is arrested and treated shamefully and mocked, their expectations of the Messiah don't line up so well with what they're seeing in front of them. They stumble over the despised stone. And that's why there's so few disciples being faithful. These vast crowds are not anywhere really to be found after the crucifixion. And so what Jesus says is, beware, all who stumble over this despised stone and unbelief will be broken. The warning to these groups of people is, hey, you cited the psalm. You cited Psalm 118. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. That's the same psalm that says the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief stone. There must be a humiliation before there can be the exaltation and glory. You don't stumble over that in unbelief. In fact, in Acts chapter 4, um, Peter cites this same argument passage. Let it be known to all of you, to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, and whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing here before you healthy. This Jesus is the stone rejected by you, builders, which has become the cornerstone. And part of the problem is that they've rightly identified a Jesus in Psalm 118, but I think they've mistaken their place. I think they viewed themselves as the triumphant crowd coming with this king to the temple. It never occurred to them they might be the builders who rejected the stone. And Jesus is, is pointing out to them. And second, all on whom it falls in judgment will be crushed. If you stumble over a humbled, rejected, murdered Jesus, you, you will be broken, and this stone that is rejected will return and crush his enemies. Interestingly, in the picture of this, in Daniel chapter 2, we have another picture of a stone. It's a different metaphor, but it is interesting, this, this, this theme of a stone returning um, is, is appears in the Bible repeatedly. Listen to Daniel 2, 34 and 35. This is um, Daniel interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream. He's telling it to him because Nebuchadnezzar didn't want to tell the wise men what the dream was. They had to guess the dream or state the dream and its interpretation. 
Daniel is able by God's power to do that. As you were watching, a stone broke off without a hand touching it, struck the statue on its feet of iron and fired clay and crushed them. Then the iron and fired clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold were shattered and became like chaff from the summer threshing floor. The wind carried them away. Not a trace of them could be found, but the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. What Jesus is saying is there's this down and up. The stone is rejected, but then it becomes a cornerstone. You can stumble over Jesus' rejection and you will be lost. Additionally, when he returns, he will destroy his enemies. All those on whom it falls will be destroyed. So Jesus is telling the crowds, look, I am going to be killed. This is going to happen. Don't stumble over that. Don't be my enemy. Don't, don't be the one on whom I destroy when I return because my enemies will be ultimately destroyed if they don't convert and become my disciples. Okay, final point then, verse 19. We see the response of the people in shock, unbelief. No, no, no. Jesus says, yes, yes, yes. Don't stumble over this. Don't trip over this. We see the response of the leaders. They understand what Jesus said as well. And the scribes and the chief priests looked for a way to get their hands on him that very hour because they knew. They knew that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. Jesus' enemies understand. Remember I told you in the, in the, in the parable, they get it. They know who the son is. His, his enemies understand this is about them. And they fulfill the prophecy by wanting to lay hands on him. But they're cowards, and they fear the people, and so they don't dare. They're going to bribe one of Jesus' disciples to betray him so they can arrest him at night in a private place. They won't take him in the daylight. They understand, point A, that he has spoken this against them. They desire to seize him, but fear people. These, these men are cowards. Remember, Luke is showing us in these six temple conflicts our Lord's fearlessness. The righteous are as bold as a lion. He has nothing to hide. He, he has done nothing wrong. And we see again and again and again the corruption, the wickedness, the, the guile, deceit, connivingness of his enemies. This on full display. He defeats them again and again and again. And we see how ugly and corrupt they are. And here, they're infuriated, and they fear the people in this frustrated position. We'll see next week how they, they take another attempt to trap him. It will fail. So, so what for us, then? What for us? Um, let me actually turn to Romans 11. And while you do, I want to make a, a few suggestions of what we can see in this. The first point of application would be this. We have a great Savior. We have a great Savior. He is unafraid. He is courageous. And he takes his enemies head on. He has nothing to hide. He willingly goes to the cross. He dies for us willingly. He knows it is happening. He is the beloved son of God. And he is wonderful. And we should worship this Christ. We ought not to stumble over this Jesus. Luke is showing us his grandeur and his glory. And so I think the first application would be that we would not stumble over this, but that we would respond in faith. That we would not stumble over the stone that was humiliated and humbled, but rather that we might see him as the wisdom of God, that we might come to faith in him, that we would trust in him, that we would have the response of faith, the fruit that God was looking for from Israel. Um, 
And to understand that as patient as our God is, I think this may be the second point of application, as patient as our God is, and he is patient, there is real wrath, there is real judgment, there is real destruction for God's enemies. And I know that doesn't sell very well in our culture. I know that those notes don't hit so well. Our culture's embarrassed of that. But we need to warn people that just because God is long-suffering, he sends one servant, and he sends a second servant, and he sends a third servant, and just because God has given you chance after chance after chance, there will come a time, if you continue to spurn him, where he will destroy you forever. And that's how long it will take to be accomplished. No one spoke more about judgment and hell and wrath than Jesus in the Bible. So there's immeasurable mercy and grace there is, there is forbearance and patience that is staggering of our God. We ought not to be ashamed of God's wrath and judgment. We should be amazed that he holds it back as long as he does. But I think the danger is that we presume that because he's patient once, he's patient a second time, and he's patient a third time, there never is any judgment coming. Well, this, this parable makes it clear there is. There is, and we ought to live in light of that. We ought to warn others in light of that. And, and the third point, if you're now at Romans 11, is this. If we are those now entrusted with the vineyard, if we are those under the apostolic teaching and the writing of the New Testament who are given that entrustment, <laughs> make no mistake, God's looking for fruit from us. And we see what he did to those who didn't give him the fruit he was looking for in stubbornness. He, he, he destroyed them and he took the vineyard from them. Well, the Apostle Paul in Romans 11 gives that same warning. And he makes it clear that God will eventually return and give the vineyard back to these tenants. There have been, he, he switches the metaphor. This is where the metaphors can get confusing. He's back to the vine metaphor. Branches were cut off the vine. Other branches were grafted onto the vine. And he says this. Verse 17, if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. So there's one way you could interpret this and be like, those silly, foolish Israelites. That was so awful. I never would have done that. That's not the right response. If you read Israel's history and you just think those knuckleheads and you don't realize you're a knucklehead, I'm a knucklehead, you're reading it wrong. Do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you are, remember it is you, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you, then you will say branches are broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. That's the fruit God was looking for. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud but fear. That's the response. Fear. Not, not fear as in terror, but taking it seriously. Fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note the kindness and severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen. But God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. So we're standing by as those who've been entrusted this stewardship 
as part of the, the, the owners, the tenant farmers that it's been shifted to. And we're seeing the judgment on the wicked tenant farmers. And we're seeing their evil and their destruction. We aren't to be proud and gloat. We're to fear and be like, okay, we don't, we don't want to do that. <laughs> we don't want to do that. We want to give God the fruit he's looking for, the fruit of faithfulness, obedience, fidelity, love, justice, kindness, all the things that we're called to do. That's the fruit the promises and blessings of God are supposed to produce in us. So Jesus has won round two. I'm going to call the worship team up and as we get ready to sing our final song. We have a great and glorious God. Let's sing praise to him.